Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great privilege to introduce this podcast, which is on the paper Predicting Neurocognitive and Behavioral Outcome After Early Brain Insult by Anderson, Spencer-Smith, Coleman, Anderson, Greenham, Jacobs, Lee, and Leventner. It'll be in the April 2014 issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Professor Flicky Anderson, who's Professor of Psychology at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, Australia, who's the first author, and Professor Michael Johnston, Professor of Neurology and Pediatrics at the Kennedy Krieger Institute, Baltimore, USA. Please can we start with you, Vicky, to discuss the paper and its background. Uh, well, thank you for the opportunity to discuss this paper. It comes out of a program of research that we're doing in my child neuropsychology research team that's really exploring the impact of early brain injury. So in the case of this study, brain injury before three years of age, comparing that to children who have brain injury after three years of age. And the purpose of this study is really to plot the long-term outcomes once children are 10 to 16 in a number of different areas. So we've looked at IQ, we've looked at children's executive function, We've looked at behaviour and social skills. So they're really to us the key areas where children will have difficulties after they've had a brain insult. And our findings show fairly clearly that children under the age of three are at great risk for problems across all of those outcome domains. And in contrast, children who have their brain injuries later are actually doing much better the predictors of those outcomes differ. So for IQ, it seems that the insult-related factors such as the size of lesion, uh, the location of the lesion and whether or not children experience seizures are quite predictive, whereas those factors are not so important in behavioural and social areas and executive functions. And in those cases, it's more environmental factors such as socioeconomic status of the child and the family environment that are particularly important in predicting outcomes. Yeah, this is a very interesting paper, especially the major finding that three years of age seemed to be the age that distinguished a good outcome from a worse outcome. And there's also data from a traumatic brain injury that younger children do worse than older children in these outcomes. And in traumatic brain injury literature, it suggested that the social and behavioral outcomes uh, seem to be the most enduring effects of these injuries. And so a lot of effort is placed on psychiatric and uh, and behavioral interventions. And I think that uh, there was a suggestion here that social interactions, early intervention that focused on social risk and family function was possibly important for rehabilitating these children. I wonder, you know, Vicki, whether you have any further evidence that that might be effective. Um, yes, it's a really good question, and a lot of our research is now focusing on the social and behavioural domain for that very reason, and I think the critical factor there is that those social and behavioural problems seem to endure and even in some cases get worse over time post injury and we've certainly found that in our traumatic brain injury research. With this study because we're looking at 
focal rather than diffuse injuries, we were interested to see whether that was the case. And again, that definitely was the case. Because though the factors that are key in those areas are potentially modifiable, so environment is something that we can modify, it offers a potential opportunity for intervention and for really improving outcomes. And while we haven't done it in the current paper that we're discussing now, in other work, particularly in um, traumatic brain injury, we've now begun and, and even completed some studies where we've actually done parent interventions. So parenting type work where we train parents to identify difficult behaviours, to understand where they've come from and then to treat them in a consistent, structured way. And that's been very successful. We've been able to show an improvement not just in child behaviour but also in parent coping skills and parent mental health. And more recently we've actually focused on parents' mental health specifically and found that if we work on minimising parents' stress and perceived burden around these kinds of child injuries, we can improve child behaviour indirectly through that mechanism. So I think that that social area and the identification of these risk factors has been quite an important finding in this whole area of traumatic brain injury and a relatively recent finding. Yeah, I know in, in traumatic brain injury that we see a lot of children with the um, social skills training seems to be important. And if you really teach these children social skills and how to interact with other people, it really helps them integrate with others and I think increases their ability to function in, in the community. Yes, I, I agree. And I think in some ways for kids who have traumatic brain injury where there's a high risk of pre-injury social and behavioural problems as well. Sometimes interventions around social skills can improve their capacities to even better than they were pre-injury. So in a strange way, particularly for kids with mild injuries, can be a benefit. Interestingly, in this group of kids, there wasn't that increased risk of lower socioeconomic status and family dysfunction conditions that kids had in this particular study were things like stroke and tumour and those conditions impact across the social strata fairly equally. So we had a group of kids that didn't have such dramatic pre-insult problems but certainly post-insult they got a range of specific difficulties. The one factor that I think is interesting and supports adult literature is that where there was some kind of frontal pathology involved, there was a trend for kids to be more likely to have these kind of behavioural and social problems. And I suppose the other comment to make is when we read adult literature, there's often a feeling that social intervention is not particularly helpful because once you've had a significant injury, then it's hard to train those skills. And we don't get that same perspective in the child neuropsychology area. It does seem that it is very much worthwhile and maybe we're helping development get back on track, but it, it certainly does seem that kids benefit from that kind of intervention. 
Yeah, I think one issue that you raised in the paper is the the concept of plasticity and the fact that uh, we all know that children remember more easily and quickly and and learn new skills. But I think this um, observation that at three years of age and less, the outcome is worse, I think it's consistent with other literature suggesting that if the brain is not fully formed and the circuits aren't really built, that in a sense, you can damage the substrate for later plasticity so that the plasticity argument kind of falls apart at the younger ages. And I think that when I've thought about this, that the plasticity in some ways can be very beneficial, but also in other ways it can be kind of the Achilles heel of the brain. The brain is so plastic that you get a more pervasive effect on the circuits. And this three years of age seems to be the time at which um, you move from plasticity as, as really making the brain more vulnerable to a time when plasticity is actually more of a, a substrate for recovery. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And uh, in terms of findings from the study, and, and this is a finding that other researchers have found as well, it's really interesting that it's not the location of the brain damage that predicts outcome. It's actually the size of the injured area. And as you say, that's really saying that in kids it, it's not, the particular region of the brain that's underpinning the functions that we're talking about. It's actually the whole network. So if we derail that development of those neural networks that underpin social skills, that underpin executive functions, attention and so on at an early age, then the blueprint for normal development is lost. And so we're seeing that ongoing development is abnormal. And in fact, in some of the other studies that we've done, if we look at serial MRI scans over time since injury, what we find is, yes, there's the evidence that the initial damage is still very clear and certainly hasn't recovered, but there's also increasing abnormality throughout the brain. So in one particular study we've done, we've found that on the side of the injury, the, the hemisphere that's most impacted, it looks quite shriveled by 10 years post-injury, almost as if it atrophied like you might see in an ageing brain. So there are some fairly clear anatomical correlates to these kinds of changes. So, I mean, it is a, a bit of a controversial area. I frequently have debates with the clinical neurologists I work with who see a recovery of function in some of the skills that, that they work with. And, and I think one of the things that we've come to understand is that plasticity might be true for quite simple functions, like simple motor functions, that we now know are mainly localised to particular brain regions. But when we get into skills that need brain networks, to be functioning effectively, then it's those skills that are not so plastic. Right. I think that often the brain is better off without a whole region of brain than it is to have a persistence of the brain with damage. And if you think of children with in utero strokes who may lose almost the whole hemisphere, a lot of those kids do very well later on. If you, you look at the MRI scan and you look at the child, you can't believe how normal the child is. And yet, if you have a persistence of a damaged hemisphere from a stroke and you have lots of 
normal hemisphere and then the stroke area, that almost seems to produce some kind of disruptive circuitry that impairs function. So I think that's where the plasticity issue is. Even like children with lack of cerebellum sometimes will really grow up without too many problems. But if there's a stroke in the cerebellum, then you have more problems. I agree. We see that quite commonly clinically, that you do a scan and you're quite surprised that the extent of a lesion and the child's functioning quite well, particularly in, the, in our epilepsy program where we do quite a lot of epilepsy surgery. It's the very small lesions in key areas such as language cortex, for example, that can create major problems, whereas diffuse damage in a whole hemisphere can actually yeah. be um, managed the child much better. Well, that's a good point that the, um, as your study also showed that epilepsy itself is a risk factor for worse function. So if you have remaining abnormal substrate for the epilepsy, you're worse off than if it was um, removed. I mean, that's a, a finding that's been really consistent right from um, the early outset of this kind of research. I think the um, Faraday Varga Cardam's group from London documented that very early on and for us that's a clear finding in all of the research we do so if we look at specific groups such as stroke or traumatic brain injury or childhood cancer epilepsy is a consistent predictor and you know it's quite interesting it only needs to be a couple of seizures before age three but that's still a really consistent predictor of outcome and to me that's quite an interesting finding when I was first training the view was that you know one seizure or febrile convulsion was fairly benign but I think we've really moved on from that stage and now we know that a lot of those kids go on to have quite significant epilepsy as well as having some of these functional difficulties. I thought it was a very interesting paper and very interesting uh, research and I learned a lot from reading it. Thank you. And uh, where next? That's a good question. So, as I mentioned earlier, we're really now very interested in intervention. I think our team has decided we've done a lot of observational research and we've got a working understanding of what the long-term problems are for children who have early brain lesions and we're really keen to move to intervention. So, we're doing that on three levels. So, we're working with parents in terms of ensuring that the environment the child grows up in is as functional as possible and then we're we're working with children in terms of very specific skills so a lot of these kids not surprisingly uh, have social problems or anxiety problems so we're doing some interventions in those areas and we're also looking at cognitive training And I suppose our key approach to that is not to reinvent the wheel, so not to go out and develop new interventions specifically for kids with brain injury, but to try and use interventions that are in the literature that have been tested via randomised control trials and found effective, and then taking those and modifying them for children with brain injury. And that's actually proved quite successful so far. We've done a number of trials where we've got some lasting effects. And and I suppose while observational research is really interesting from a theoretical point of view, it's very nice to see 25 years into my career, it's nice to see that we can actually do something that makes a difference for kids and families too. 
Well, I think that's very uh, important. I think the intervention, social skills training, other forms of psychological intervention with a family, I think we also find that this is a, a very important investment that you can make and that the kind of problems that these kids can get into in the, in the future is considerable. So that this investment in interventions, I think, is very important. Yes, I agree. I think we have one study that we've just completed where we've been following up a group of kids with traumatic brain injury for 15 years now and the overwhelming finding there is poor quality of life, very limited social relationships. A number of those kids have been in trouble with the law and have spent some time in juvenile justice systems. So there really is a need for us to make sure we follow these kids up. And it's quite a balance between being too paternalistic in this area and following kids too frequently and making sure that they're hooked into services when they need to be and they understand that some of their problems can be due to, to brain injury because a lot of the, these kids who have very early injuries, family forgets that the brain injury was such a significant event and uh, is likely to cause these kind of problems. So you know, they go on and they don't really hook back into services very frequently. It used to be said that young children could recover much better than older children and really you're completely disproving that, aren't you? The history to that is I read a very interesting paper by a guy called Ian St. James Roberts when I was training that was the very first work I'd ever seen that suggested that kids might be at a disadvantage and that really played out in clinical practice. So all of the research that my team's done over 20 years has been really focused on whether or not that was the case and I think that these days most of the research is... is um, consisted in saying that very young injuries have poorer outcomes. But also if there were specific issues that were protective for young kids, and I suppose this current study was really a piece in the puzzle. The hypothesis was that focal lesions where there was lots of undamaged brain that could take up the functions from the areas of the brain that are being damaged would have better outcomes than more diffuse injuries such as traumatic brain injury but in fact that wasn't the case for the younger children I think for the older children those that had their insults after age three their outcomes are, are pretty good and they do look more and more like adult outcomes as the kids get older. The one thing about traumatic brain injury that we see is that if you're seven or eight or a teenager that those children will recover over a longer period of time than the average adult. And generally, we see a more complete recovery. If you talk to adult rehabilitation professionals, you know, they're looked for a fairly limited time of recovery, whereas the children will continue to gain skills for years. So I, th I think there is some plasticity that's in the brain older than three years of age and it can be useful substrate for recovery. And I think that is true for injuries of all ages. So we've just been looking at concussion, which is the flavour of the month at the moment, I think, for, for brain injury. Our early results are showing that our child sample shows a much more protracted recovery than adults. So the, the typical recovery period that's described in the adult literature is up to a week. And we've been following kids for out to three months and finding that at 
two weeks, kids can sometimes be performing more poorly than they were at the time of injury. And we think that's because they, they might go back to school too early and right. before they're, they're really ready. But there's some really practical implications from some of these more theoretical findings in the child literature. And in that particular case, it's really clear that kids need to have a graduated return to school and other activities so that they're not too stressed. It's quite hard to get that across to families who are more used to the findings and routines and standard practice in the adult area. There's a lot of talk in the United States about this too. They call it the cognitive rest. And one school says you let the kids after a concussion uh, stay home from school and uh, with little stimulation. Yes. So, I mean, we, we don't take such a radical approach, but we do suggest graduated return to school and to sports. So I mean, a couple of days of rest, preferably without any of the typical technological gadgets that kids use these days, and then just a really gradual return to activity once symptoms have resolved completely. So we looked at a group of kids prior to implementing these kinds of guidelines and we found a lot of kids were returning at two weeks with symptoms and quite stressed and anxious and for whatever reason we haven't actually done the controlled study yet but with these new guidelines where we're asking parents to keep kids at home and quiet but not necessarily with no stimulation until they're symptom free that seems to be minimising the secondary anxiety and stress that, that kids are feeling and they seem to be able to get back to school more smoothly even if it takes a little bit longer. So the knowledge that we've gained from more severe injuries I think is helping us to understand these much more common and milder injuries too. That's very interesting. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to Professor Anderson and to Professor Johnston for highlighting such an interesting topic and discussing the implications, what it means for the children and the future as well. Just to remind our listeners, the article is Predicting Neurocognitive and Behavioural Outcome After Early Brain Insult by Anderson et al. in the April 2014 issue.